This is Grounded, a podcast from Michigan Sugar Company. Grounded is intended to explore our history, the tradition that's made us great, and the ideas to drive us into the future. Grounded is hosted by Jim Ruhlman, Michigan Sugar Company Executive Vice President. And now, here's Jim Ruhlman. Welcome to Grounded. With us today is Brian Ingalls Root from American Crystal Sugar Company. Brian serves as the Vice President of Agriculture for their cooperative and has been with them for 30 years. Brian, I'm glad you could join us. Glad to be here, Jim. Thank you. Maybe we can start with a little bit of background on American Crystal. Many of our Michigan listeners know of the American Crystal name, but I'm not sure they know the magnitude and the size of your operation. So maybe you can share a little bit about your organization, the size of your company, how many growers you have, and things like that. You bet. Well, the company's been around for a really long time. It's actually 130 years old, and it's converted from a stock-owned company to a co-op in 1973 when the growers realized there really hadn't been much reinvestment back into the company, and they were concerned about them being able to continue to grow beets which was a a very important crop to them. And so they wanted to take matters into their own hands, and they purchased the company. And they did it with a mindset of wanting to reinvest to make sure that beets are grown in the Red River Valley here for years to come. And they've, they've really maintained that mindset of wanting to continue to put enough money in to the company to make sure it's viable, not only for them, but for their children and their grandchildren. So we have five factories in the Red River Valley, and the Red River Valley spans about 175 miles north and south. That's just our portion of it. It goes a little bit south of that in the Mindac growing region. Mindac is another sugar beet company just to the south of us. But we go from just south of the Fargo-Moorhead area up to the Canadian border. And that is about 175 miles north to south. And then it's about roughly 60 miles wide, rough and dirty, 30 miles on both sides of the border between Minnesota and North Dakota. And it's at the bottom of a old glacial lake bed. And uh, the glaciers were covering this just a little over 10,000 years ago. And when they melted, there was a giant lake that was created from the the melted glaciers. And there was all kinds of living creatures in that lake. All of that created a tremendous amount of organic matter that floated to the bottom. And it created a very flat surface of rich soil that our growers are able to enjoy today. And uh, on a typical year, we plant just under 400,000 acres. Our target yield is roughly 30 tons per acre. And because we are dry land farming here, just like you are in Michigan, we get some fairly variable yields. We can easily be four tons above or below our target of roughly 30 tons per acre. And the other thing about our growing area is spring planting can be pretty unpredictable. We're right in the middle of the continent, and so our weather, we technically have average temperatures and precip, but 
it never seems to be really average. We're either too wet, too dry, too hot, too cold, and that can sometimes cause issues with our spring planting timing due to the moisture being too high. And that also has a pretty big impact on our final yield. So it's not uncommon for us to come in, like I said, either four tons on either side of that target 30 tons per acre. I see. Can you give us a feel for slice capacity and number of employees that you have as well, Brian? You bet. We have slice capacity of just under 40,000 tons per day. And just going from north to south, our Moorhead factory is our farthest south one. That's about 6,300 tons a day. And the next one going north is our Hillsborough factory at 9,250. Crookston's about 6,000. East Grand Forks is 9,250. And our Drayton factory is just under 8,000 tons uh, per day. So when you look at your slice year, I know you guys start early before permanent pile and uh, and you go later in the year. Is, is a typical campaign for you 250 plus days or can you give us a feel for that? Yeah, we're typically right around that 275 days. We can go longer than that, but that's generally our target between 275 and 280 days. I gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah, and also as far as the number of employees we have, we have roughly 2,000 employees. Most of those are year-round, but we do have some that we call campaign employees. We lose them over the summer. And that's been a big challenge for us is just keeping our factory staff because the unemployment rate in this area is really low. And as our more senior employees retire, we always have a difficult time attracting and then retaining new employees. You know, the skills on running a sugar beet factory are pretty unique. And so it takes some time to train those new employees on exactly what they need to do to turn the sugar beets into sugar. We're running into that same issue here in Michigan, too. And I've talked to others in the industry that are facing that challenge as well. And I, actually, I think the unemployment rate in, in your area might be a little bit lower than ours even. So we can empathize with those concerns, and we, too, are making plans for how to adjust and adapt in the future. Brian, you're currently the VP of Ag, but you've held other positions at American Crystal as well. Can you tell me about those? You bet. Yeah, I started almost 30 years ago in the finance department as a financial analyst, and then later moved into the roles of treasurer, controller, which is the head of accounting. And then I moved into a role of vice president of administration, which in our company means responsibility for the HR, IT, and public relations functions. And then over the last five years, I've been the vice president for agriculture. So as VP of Ag, what makes it uniquely different from the other positions you've held? Well, I would say my contact with the shareholder growers, which I really appreciate. I grew up on a farm. I actually planned to farm, but due to some pretty severe grain dust allergies, I decided I needed to find another career. So coming back to this area and working for American Crystal, I really enjoyed being part of a collection of farms that, you know, in my mind is 
is really a large farm of roughly 400,000 acres. And, and I really appreciate working with growers and thinking about what would I do if that was my farm. And I like to put myself in their shoes. And when I, I'm faced with a difficult decision relative to the egg department, I like to think about, well, what would I do if I owned the entire 400,000 acres? And it's not in every case, but usually what's best for all of them collectively is usually the best answer. I got you. Let's talk about that relationship between company and shareholders. And as the VP of Ag, you're, you're at the center of directing and fostering those types of relationships. So I understand that the mindset that you take and in making decisions, what is your approach and how you communicate and, and interact with growers and what do you find to be most effective? We have a lot of growers. We have roughly 700 farm units in our cooperative. So it's really impossible for me to be able to interact with each and every one of them on a day-to-day basis. And so what I try to do is to pass on my rationale for why we're doing what and make sure our egg staff has a good understanding of that. Because I think the most effective communications is that one-on-one face-to-face conversations between our agriculturists and their growers because they've already developed that that trust. And you can have a true interaction of uh, questioning, well, why this and why that? And so I think that is the best way to communicate is to make sure our staff is understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing it, and then making sure they are having those face-to-face conversations with our growers. Another form of communication that I think we've started to lean on more in in the last few years is sending out information with text. And with our text system, we're limited on exactly the the word count that we can contain in any one text. And so a lot of times we'll send a text out with a link to a more detailed set of information. Then the shareholders will get the text. They can hit the link button and be taken right into our web page to see what's going on. We particularly use that a lot during harvest and just so people understand what's going on. Speaking of harvest, Brian, you guys are coming off a, a year that's, I guess, unprecedented in terms of weather and some of the challenges that you faced during your last harvest. Can you kind of paint us a picture of what that looked like? Sure. Yeah, I kind of hate to relive it in a way. It was a, it was a brutal one. You know, some places in the valley, it was actually a pretty dry growing season, particularly in the northern parts of the valley. Other areas had been kind of wet right from the spring. But generally, overall, we started to get rains, it seemed like, almost every other day as soon as we started pre-pile harvest in the middle of August. And so pre-pile harvest was really tricky this year, just bouncing around, trying to make sure we had enough feeds to feed the factories. And I was pretty amazed that the cooperation between the egg staff and the growers to kind of flex with our original harvest plan, which, you know, it, it was a great plan on paper until it started raining. 
almost every other day and we had to right we had to make some changes and be a little creative and we were able to do that but then by the middle of september it went from more nuisance rain to wow this is a lot of rain we got a record amount of rain in the month of september most of it came in the last two weeks and so we were drenched at that point and we got a little harvest done as we got towards October 5th to 10th, not a lot. Then we had a snowstorm on October 11th. We got up to 24 inches in the northern parts wow. of the Red River Valley. So that put a big halt to the harvest for quite a while to wait for that to melt and to be able to get back into the field. We finally started to get going again around October 24th. We started to have some progress. Well, then we got a very cold snap where we got a lot of temperatures well below 20 degrees. And at that point, we had to really change our strategy. We typically don't want to harvest and store any beets that have been frozen and haven't been healed. But looking at the forecast going forward, there wasn't going to be any chance for these severely frozen beets to reheal before we put them into a pile. So at that point, we switched gears and said, all right, we're going to be willing to take frozen beets because we were uh, way behind in terms of getting things harvested. We took about a million tons of severely frozen beets, about a 30-day supply. And, you know, at this point, I'm glad we did. I think we got a little lucky being able to freeze them because for once, the weather was actually in our favor during the month of November. It stayed pretty cold. So we did not have a meltdown of those frozen beets, those 1 million tons. But at the end of the day, we only harvested roughly two-thirds of what we had planned to harvest. And so uh, pretty difficult year for our shareholders. I, I, I was in communication with a lot of people around the industry at that time and, and actually, you know, with you and Dan directly, just intermittently, and I was just putting my, like you put yourself in the shoes of a shareholder, I was putting myself in your shoes, and it is an unbelievable time to make decisions and communicate with shareholders and try to manage the risk as best you can, and I think you guys did a remarkable job with what you were faced with, so hats off to you and hats off to your growers and hoping for better things to come next year. Greatly appreciate that, Jim. I there's nowhere to go but up from here the way I look at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about planting. I mean, planting season is around the corner. Every year we sit down with our board and, and we have discussions on how many acres to plant. And typically we have this mindset of, like you said, the yields are unpredictable. Uh, it can be as much as four tons off of a 30-ton average. And when you're sitting down and you, and you look at your slice capacities and the days you want to start and the days you want to end, there's always this guesswork in how many acres do we plant and what do we think our yields are going to be. So when you guys approach that thought, do you guys approach it in a way where you don't want to throw beets away or you don't want to leave them in the ground at, at any price? Or are you thinking that it's okay to leave a few in the ground or throw away some on the back end. It, it's something that we, I'll even use the word struggle. We struggle with that number of how many acres to plant. So 
I guess I'm wondering how you guys approach it. I know you've had cases where you've had a few more than you thought you might have. And I'm wondering if you could share with us, one, how you guys go about determining your acreage, and then two, in the event that you do have too many, how do you handle it? Yeah. So, you know, generally speaking, we target around a 30-ton yield, and there's a possibility that we could go up to four tons above that. We generally plant the number of acres that would allow us to get up to somewhere between 31 and a half or 32 ton yield. So in other words, we're willing to accept that chance that, yeah, okay, if we get a four ton plus above our 30, the difference between 32 and 34, we're going to have to leave in the field. You know, I think this year is just a perfect reminder and lesson for why it's so important to get enough tons to spread those fixed costs out and utilize the factories to be be more cost efficient. And I guess the way I look at it, you're aiming for a 30-ton crop and you end up averaging a 34-ton crop, you got blessed with some very good weather. And if you can only harvest 32 out of those 34 tons, you're still coming out much better than you expected at 32. And we'll take that every day. I hate to say it, but having too many tons is kind of a nice problem to have. I'd sure <laughs> rather have that problem rather than come up you know, only two thirds of what you wanted. Mm-hmm. I'll take that problem every day. Yep. Yeah. As far as leaving them in the field or throwing them away, we would much rather leave them in the field than try to harvest more tons than what we think we can legitimately handle. Because not only does taking too many tons cost you in the year that you do it, because you're going to have disposal costs of all those extra tons. And that cost per ton is pretty high. I mean, we usually estimate it's in the neighborhood of $30 a ton to have to discard a beet that you harvested and then subsequently couldn't process. And we want to avoid that. But there's Mm -hmm. more of a long-term cost to having to do that as well because you're going to put a strain on your environmental compliance issues when you push it too far. And that type of a cost, you have to repay that years into the future with probably more likely more stringent environmental issues that you're going to have to live with. We want to avoid that. Mm -hmm. So let's say you you think you might have too many. I guess the first question I have is, what is your approach in leaving them in the field? Is Is it a certain percentage of acres stay in the field or how do you manage the amount of or the volume of beets that you want to leave in the field? Sure. So every year at around the 1st of August, we try to get an assessment of what kind of crop potential we have out there. And unless it's a, a really poor crop, we're going to say we better make sure everybody understands that they could possibly have to leave somewhere around 10% or possibly even 15% of their acres unharvested. And so our shareholders have become pretty used to getting this letter. It basically comes every year to say, 
look at your field and be prepared to leave 15% of those acres. And you can, you don't have to necessarily leave 15% in each field. You can take the very worst field. So let's say you have a thousand acres and you have a 150 acre field that didn't do so well. Set aside that 150 acre field and assume you're going to harvest that at the end. You're going to wait to see if we have room to process them all. And then as harvest progresses, we try to make an assessment of where we think we're going to end up. And, you know, that's always a frustrating process because we don't really know where we're going to end up until we get there. And so growers want to know, oh, can I harvest that 150-acre field or not? I've got a crew here, and I don't want to be paying them, you know, while I sit here and wait to find out whether I can harvest that last field. So the pressure is on us to try to communicate back to the shareholders, okay, we started out with a 15% holdback, and now it looks like we'll be able to trim that back to 10%, and then eventually down to 5%. And then most years, it goes all the way down to zero, and you can harvest everything. So we try to dole that out as quickly as we feel confident that we can. Okay. So let's say you do have to leave them in the field. What's the general grower reaction when you do? I mean, are they accepting of it? Do they understand or does it just still feel like they put all this time and all this effort into this crop and now they're not getting harvested? Well, it's hard to get around that, but I guess we try to communicate the value of not coming up short. And like I said, this year, the value or the cost of coming up short is so apparent to everybody. I don't think we'll be needing to remind people for a while. <laughs> but okay. uh, yeah. I think that as long as people have that understanding of what it costs to run short, they don't like having to leave beasts in the field, but yet they have a intellectual understanding of why we need to do that in order to have the most efficient company on a year-after-year basis. I get it. Let's talk, switch gears a little bit, Brian, and, and just talk ag climate, ag climate in the Red River Valley right now. How are sugar beets viewed today, and, and what are the other crops that you grow in the valley, and what does a typical crop rotation look like out there? Yeah, so we're lucky. Most of the acres that beets follow are still wheat. You know, it's in the neighborhood of 80% of the acres that get planted to beets followed up a wheat crop. And we really try to encourage growers to make that the case because we track a lot of records on yields based on a lot of different variables. One of them, what was the preceding crop? And generally speaking, the beets do much better following wheat because of disease issues. The other crops that are grown in the area are corn and soybeans. This area, you did not see much corn 20 years ago, but as the hybrids have evolved and and shortened up, you're really seeing a lot more corn pressure. That being said, beets are still the crop that are going to pay the bills on the farm year in and year out. And so our growers are pretty committed to growing sugar beets. They view themselves as sugar beet growers first and, you know, other crops 
filled in in between. They typically have a at least two years in between their beet crops in order to take the, the pressure off disease. So when you talk about disease and you talk about threats to your crop, do you have a big disease threat out there right now or is the biggest threat right now just weather? Well, yeah, no, I'm, I'm concerned about a, a few different diseases. I'd say Cercospora is probably the number one threat. We've been pretty lucky in terms of not having severe Cercospora, but you can see a difference between the southern end of our growing region and the northern end. And then if you go just south of us into the Mindac growing region and then south of them into the southern Minnesota growing region, it's definitely taking a toll on the beet crops down there. And it's not only an issue of lower sugar content, but also the cost associated with trying to control that Cercospora. And so we've really been targeting a spray program to avoid resistance of Cercospora. And that's a big part of what we do in working with our growers is making sure they don't skimp on control for Cercospora mm-hmm. because it's worth so much if uh, you can keep a, a decent sugar content on a per-ton basis. I guess the next disease that we're concerned about is Rhizoctonia. That also is pretty widespread through the entire growing region. We've got some pretty good methods to combat that, and that's where I think our egg staff does a really good job of communicating with their growers in selecting the right varieties. Those varieties that are more resistant to Rhizoctonia don't have the same high-end yield and sugar content potential, but if that's the right thing for that farm based on the history that they've had, we want to make sure that they're they're choosing the right variety for their situation. And I think that has worked out pretty well. Then we've got the weed resistance issues with resistance to Roundup. And that's becoming more of an issue all the time. Once again, moving from the south to the north. And we're also getting some pressure from the west side of the valley where more resistant kochia is showing up all the time. But water hemp is essentially spread through the entire growing region now. That's that's an impressive weed in terms of its ability to spread. It sure is. In in listening to you talk, we have the same issues here. And when you talk about Cercospora leaf spot, we've kind of learned the hard way there and that we didn't always have adequate spray programs. And we've learned that seed selection is even more important than one we once thought. So seed selection is critical. Spray programs for Cercospora are critical. And seed selection is just mandatory that you pick the right seed when you're going into the spring planting season. So a lot of similarities there between the valley and, and our growers in Michigan. Let's talk about maybe some spring planting then. We've got beets going in the ground today. Which wow. Is, <laughs> so a little bit early. We usually get some in in March. I'm not a big portion of our crop, and then we hope to get the majority of them in by the end of April. Can you maybe talk to us about your planting season, when you usually start, and when you like to have them in the ground? You bet. We sometimes can get a decent amount of acres planted in mid-April. That is kind of rare, though. Our planting usually gets going at the end of April, and the average planting date for 
many years. If you look at the five-year average, the 10-year average, the 20-year average, it's always going to fall right around May 5th. So that's typically what would happen here. One of the concerns we always have around here is a hard spring frost because it can get pretty cold some morning in as late as late May. That's always something that makes us a little nervous. And so one of the things that we have developed here is what we call the spring tap, a targeted acres program. And we have growers sign up for it in March. And what they're signing up for is a commitment to grow more acres if we decide we're going to need them. So if our planting season gets delayed and it's apparent that we're going to have average planting dates well after May 5th, we'll then say, okay, you growers that signed up for uh, spring tap, we're going to release some of the acres that you agreed to plant. And our goal there is, again, to fully utilize our factories, make sure that we don't come up short in total tons. And we know planting date is a pretty big variable when it comes to your expected yield. And so if we're a week late, that's going to take probably at least a, a ton per acre off of our yield. And we'll want to make up for that with some additional acres. I see. That's a really interesting program. So as you're going into your planting season this year, what's the attitudes of your growers right now? How are they feeling about the next crop? Well, they're a little nervous because we went into freeze-up in winter with a lot of wet ground out there. And a lot of it didn't get its usual amount of field work. There wasn't a lot of fertilizer that was able to be applied in the fall. And so there's a lot to be done this spring and when the snow disappears finally that ground is not going to look like it's just ready to go i uh, see spring planting so i think the chances are we're going to have a later spring but who knows yeah like i said before our weather here <laughs> can be we've got averages but they don't mean a whole lot we can uh, we can be pretty wild all over mm-hmm. the board every year's a new year isn't it brian i i'm gonna kind of wrap this thing up i hope your next this growing season or this planting season coming up for you is, is a good one while we're competitors at a certain level we all have common interests and threats and strengths then that we can support each other on and i want to thank you for taking the time with us today i appreciate uh, your insight and your input today it was a really interesting story that you told about your company and and i appreciate you taking the time with us anytime uh my pleasure. This has been Grounded. If you'd like to hear an episode on a specific topic, please email your ideas to grounded at michigansugar.com. Thanks for listening and check back soon for another edition of Grounded.